Welcome to the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Show. Here you will find a variety of podcasts from authors, bloggers, and speakers ready to encourage you on your daily journey. I can't wait to get started. And now let's listen to today's show. This podcast is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. What is creation? Did God create the world in six days and rest on the seventh? Does anyone really care? These questions and many more, including teaching tips and great resources, are presented in the Creation Science Podcast. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and it's my pleasure and honor to be your host. Some of these shows are from my Best of Creation Expos and other presentations I've completed throughout the years of teaching on this topic. I'm the owner of Media Angels, Inc., a publishing company that produces books, audios, and videos to help you and your family in your Christian walk. Check out my books and other podcasts at MediaAngels.com. To get the show notes for this broadcast, go to CreationSciencePodcast.com. And now, let's learn together. Hi, folks. This is Patrick Nury from Northwest Treasures. Uh, If you've not heard uh, of me or heard about what I do, you can find out more information uh, on our website, northwestrockandfossil.com. Northwest is all spelled out, northwestrockandfossil.com. There you can see the list of my books I've written on the subject of geology and uh, the materials I have, the kits, the samples with each book, each class. We do online classes. We conduct field trips, especially our annual Yellowstone and Dinosaur Dig. And uh, we also have a geology camp for equipping and training young people. And uh, we can do localized field trips in your area by appointment. Now, Today, I want to talk to you about the subject of biblical geology. What is biblical geology? Now, at this point, you might be thinking, now, wait a minute, the Bible really doesn't cover science. The Bible doesn't cover geology. We have to go to the the secular sciences of the secular sources to find out about geology. But that is just... Uh, and that's just not true at all. The Bible, it is true, is not a science textbook. That doesn't mean that there are errors scientifically in the Bible. It just means that the Bible stresses other things. Now, to review this whole area, uh, I think there's a real need to do this because for the last couple of hundred years, we have been taught that The Bible is myth, or it really has nothing to do with science, and that it's the secular scientists who alone contain the ability to be able to discern and figure out Earth's past or Earth history. So I want to review this and uh, define a few terms and uh, show you even how the Bible can be used uh, in the subject of biblical geology. Now, First of all, geology, two Greek words meaning study of the earth. Geology really involves two parts. And for those of you who are wondering, I use geology 
and earth science uh, together. I, I think they're just about the same thing here. Uh, earth science is also divided into another subject called earth history, but it's all covered under the heading of geology, the study of the earth. Now, geology involves two parts. It involves earth's physical chemistry that has to do with observation and testing, and this is the true earth science. This is where you can examine a rock and figure out the minerals it contains. You can look at rock layers and figure out the rocks that form the layers. This part of it is the true science. The definition of science, by the way, is that which can be observed, tested, and repeated. Observed, tested, and repeated. So really anything that can't be observed, tested, and repeated really is not science. But the other thing this definition allows us to see is that science itself is extremely limited in its ability to explain much of anything about life. Science really can't explain values. It can't explain morals. It can't explain the emotions. Science is extremely limited. Now, today's science has ventured into all kinds of areas that uh, really touch on these very things that science really has no business doing. The second part of geology involves Earth's origin, how Earth came to be. Now, this is the Earth history in geology, and the current thinking is that the Earth is approximately 4.5 to 4.6 billion years old, and it originated as a ball of molten lava and uh, has been cooling and uh, cooled sufficiently enough within the first billion years or so to form a crust and the first life in the form of microbes sprang up a few billion years ago. Now, this is the standard thinking, but again, that can't be tested, it can't be observed, and it certainly can't be repeated. So it is really technically not science. It is something else. Now, outside the realm of science, which is where we are, we are involving three other subjects. One is history, the second is philosophy, and the third is consensus. History deals with one-time unique events, usually supported by documentation and eyewitnesses. We talk about the Civil War, for instance. Nobody living today that I know of was around during the Civil War. Now, that would mean that we would have to rely on things like uh, reports by eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts, uh, photographs, and drawings, things like this that help us piece together what actually happened. That's history. And uh, by the way, this is where the Bible really fits well. The Bible is a history book, and so although it's not a science textbook, as a history book, it's a broader framework in which we can fit things like Earth history. Another definition deals with 
philosophy, and that is biased interpretations of evidence. Now, the word biased here, I'm not actually using it as a negative or positive thing. It's just that interpretations are often influenced by what we believe or what we think, uh, influences from others. The evidence does not change, but the interpretations do. And that's what we call philosophy. The word consensus deals with the opinions of a select group, regardless of the facts. Now, this is where the subject of evolution fits. Obviously, we can't observe, repeat uh, evolution because of, of course, the lengths of time involved for one creature to uh, evolve into an entirely different creature. So why is it accepted as a fact then? Because it's the consensus. Most scientists today believe that evolution is a fact, but not because of the facts or because of science, but because of consensus. If you don't agree with it, you're out. Probably not get a job as a result. Now, the real difficult part here in secular geology, and that's what I'll call it here to distinguish it from biblical geology, is this. Secular geology combines the science <clears throat> and the history into an academic course called earth science. And that can be very, very confusing uh, because there is some science in modern secular earth science, but there's also a lot of philosophy, history, and consensus involved. Modern geology consists of trying to answer questions like these. How and why did the earth come to be? How old the earth is? Even trying to answer the questions from where did all the rocks come? And where did I come from? None of these really have to do with science. They all have to do with those three other subjects, history, philosophy, and consensus. And that's why I said earlier, science is really very limited when it comes to explaining things about life. Even though scientists claim these domains, they really have nothing to do with science. And in our discussions with people, we need to really stick to our guns, so to speak, and insist that we follow definitions uh, and not wander off into areas that have nothing to do with science. Then we can talk about history, we can talk about philosophy, and we can talk about consensus. But being able to sort out what it is that scientists are saying into these words and understanding exactly how they fit the subject, I think is very critical for us as we teach science to our kids and for our kids so that they can maintain their faith and also be good apologists for the faith. Now, none of these questions have to do with science. All of these questions really have more to do with worldview, that is, how one sees the world around them. Believers in the scriptures are not engaged in a war of religion versus science, which is what we've been taught 
for over a hundred years, uh, believers in the scriptures are really engaged in a war of worldview versus worldview. Two different worldviews at war with each other. So let's examine these. When we talk about the secular worldview of earth history, the underpinning word that best describes secular view of earth history is a word uniformitarianism. It, uh, it really means that the processes, the natural processes that we observe today are sufficient to explain all of earth history. So it's an extrapolation, isn't it? We can definitely watch and measure uh, erosion today. We can uh, measure these kinds of things with rain and snow, with water and so on. But that's what we observe today. If we try to interpret the past based on them, we have left science and now we get into an attempt to define history, philosophy, and consensus. One of the main reasons I think this is a problem is because it rejects the historical biblical flood. If the historical global biblical flood actually did take place as a real event in history, then it rather would explain what we see in the rock layers and formations today, not uniformitarianism. Now, uniformitarianism encompasses several ideas. It encompasses the view that the earth is billions of years old. It encompasses the view that the earth originated and developed naturalistically. And it uh, involves the view that they, uh, there are only chemicals and elements to life, that God is irrelevant. Now, all of these are extremely critical to understand because God presents himself in the scriptures as a historical God. He was involved in every part, and there were eyewitnesses to it. Uh, there's documentation. So we're definitely uh, seeing a, a view of history that contradicts what the scriptural view of earth history and uh, history is. So now the biblical view of earth history is undergirded by the word supernaturalism. And what I mean by that is that God was involved in just about every aspect of our history. Many, many times as you read through the first chapter of Genesis, you see this. God said, God spoke, God did, God performed. He was involved in every aspect and has been in our history. So this is a very vital part of the biblical view of earth history. It's not been done in a vacuum. Many, many people throughout history have seen the same God work these kinds of things and have seen his works and have written about them in the scriptures. Now, the basic concepts in the biblical view of earth history are these. The earth is thousands of years old, not millions and billions. When I say thousands, this has to do again with the historical accounts mentioned in the scriptures, primarily contained in the genealogies and chronologies 
of Genesis. And yes, you can figure this out very easily. Just simple math. That's all there is. Uh, number two, the earth originated by the word of God from nothing. This is a part of the biblical view of earth history. And another concept is that man is made in the image of God. He's not a product of evolution over millions of years. He did not have any ancestors that go back to microbes. He was a special creation made in the image and likeness of God. And another concept of the biblical view of earth history is that nothing exists apart from God. This is critically important. We are all dependent. All of creation is dependent upon God. Very critical ideas involved in the biblical view of earth history. Now, this assault on the scriptures really began in the 1700s and continued into the 1800s in primarily Western civilization, Europe, and then spreading to America, called the Enlightenment. I sometimes refer to it as the Endarkenment. The Enlightenment was a, uh, a breaking free of the influence from the church and from the scriptures and uh, certain men, and it was an elite group of men during this time, who established some new rules for thinking, new rules for evaluating earth history, new rules for evaluating morals and so on. And uh, this was actually an assault on the scriptural view of earth history. The Enlightenment stressed a rejection of the flood. One of the main influencers of modern geology was a fellow by the name of, of Charles Lyell, who insisted that Genesis uh, or that the uh, modern geology be totally divorced from anything to do with Genesis. The Enlightenment rejected the Bible as history. And this is really out of hand. There was no archaeology at the time that contradicted the Bible. Most of the archaeology since then has been due to an interpretation of the evidence, which has also been very biased uh, and influenced by the Enlightenment views. The Enlightenment regarded the Genesis creation story as a myth. Again, there was no science to dictate this. It was simply a change in the way mankind would look at the creation and earth history. And the Enlightenment rejected miracles. And of course, soon to follow was the virgin birth and the resurrection. These were not to be a part of anything in, uh, in reality. And it also questioned the deity of Christ. This is why in some of our founding fathers, there's kind of a a paradox where some of these uh, men were very moral. They uh, supported a moral beginning for our country, and yet they questioned the deity of Christ. It wasn't because of their exhaustive research. It was really due to the influence of the Enlightenment, which in general questioned the deity of Christ. And the Enlightenment rejected the idea of biblical revelation. Now, I'm not referring to the, the book of Revelation here. I'm referring to the idea that the scriptures were uh, given to us by God through 
men that he had selected beforehand. Scriptures were not the inspired word of God, according to the Enlightenment. So now we can answer, or answer the question, what is biblical geology? Well, first and foremost, biblical geology used the scriptures as a record of history. The scriptures are to be accepted as a record of history. Uh, biblical geology derives its source, really, from looking at recorded history of, of the earth. That's where it starts. And so if we don't accept the scriptures as history, we're not going to be able to solve and answer the question, what is biblical geology? The scriptures divide earth history into five main periods. Now, you can subdivide these periods if you want, but I'm just going to give them uh, to you here, and you can arrange them in a vertical column if you want. Uh, the first one is, of course, creation. This is where God spoke the entire universe into existence in six days. Now, how do we know it was six days? Well, the word day is reinforced in another passage. I don't have time to talk about that here, but you can read it in Exodus 20. And it was clearly understood that the work week uh, was divided accordingly. Six days for creation, six days for work, the seventh day for rest. And uh, in addition, the six days in Genesis are divided by evening and mornings, one day, two day, three days, and so on. So that would be the first main period of Earth history. The second main period was the pre-flood period, approximately 1,656 years long, beginning with Adam, and then slowly corrupted through the next several hundred years, and uh, was uh, corrupted and decayed because of sin. That was followed by the next period, the flood. God destroyed the earth with a year-long global flood. Many people think it was just 40 days and 40 nights. That was only part of it. There was a year-long devastation uh, in the geology of the earth brought about by the global flood. And you can see here, if we get rid of the flood, then the only alternative to explain the rock layers and the fossils is, of course, evolution and long ages of Earth history. But if the flood took place, it did all of this within the year-long global flood as recorded in Genesis. The fourth period that the Bible talks about is the what we'd call the post-flood period. This is the period immediately following the flood to the present time. And of course, this is where salvation from sin was accomplished, wasn't it? And then the fifth period that we're given clues to in the scriptures, but has not happened yet, is the period we call the future, including eternity. Now, geologically, this is where we get the new heavens and the new earth talked about in scripture. Now, one thing I want you to see by this column, if you've drawn this column and put in the five periods of Earth history, is that there is no prehistoric past. Time began in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the space and the earth. 
<clears throat> there was no prehistoric past. And so to speak of creatures and ancient man that lived before modern man uh, is just not acceptable to a scriptural view of earth history. No prehistoric past. God was the only one who was existing prior to the creation. And he did not have a beginning. He's eternal. That's what scriptures teach. So there was no prehistoric past. History began with Genesis 1.1. Now, this column, if you've draw, drawn it as such, including the creation, the pre-flood world, the flood, the post-flood period, and the future period, um, of course, we don't know how long in the future, this final period will be, uh, will start, or uh, and how long it will will last. Uh, initially, we have to leave that to the scriptures, and as God chooses to fulfill it. But at least the first four periods—the creation, pre-flood world, the flood, and the post-flood period—have lasted to for about six thousand years of earth history. This is based on the genealogies and chronologies beginning in Genesis chapter 5. Now, one of the things I want you to do here, if you get time, is go through Genesis 5 and ask yourself the question, when each patriarch is uh, shows when he gave birth to a particular son, uh, of course, they had other sons and daughters, it says, but there's a particular line that biblical history follows. And the one through Adam, of course, was Seth. It wasn't his first child, but uh, they choose to follow Seth from there to Abraham. Now, the scriptures specifically teach in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. And then it goes on to list the exact number of years that Adam lived. So, good question to ask here, and you can do this with each patriarch, when the son was born. How old was the earth when Seth was born? Well, we know Adam was created on the sixth day of creation. So, we have six days plus 130 years. So, the earth was 130 years old and six days when Seth was born. It's very easy to figure out, and you can do this with each patriarch. So that's our biblical understanding here of earth history. Now, not all the details are shown uh, in the scripture, but a number of them are, and they are significant enough to be able to construct somewhat of a time frame and a column in which to put things in as we observe them in geology. So during the six days, of course, the elements, energy, water, sea creatures, birds, man, and also dinosaurs, these were the land creatures, all had their beginning here in that first week, the creation week. Secular geologists teach us that about 15 billion years ago, the Big Bang happened, and the first elements to be created were hydrogen and helium, and then everything else subsequently, uh, or, uh, subsequently to that. But in Scripture, when the Scripture records, God said, let there be light, we have 
uh, beginning of energy and all its forms. It's very interesting to do a study on the electromagnetic spectrum and see all the various forms of light energy that there are. Uh, now, dinosaurs, of course, the word wasn't invented until 1842, so how do we know they were dinosaurs? Well, dinosaurs have no prehistory in the scripture. Land animals, which is what paleontologists say dinosaurs are, existed in the creation week, the sixth, the, the, uh, sixth day. And so dinosaurs must have been created on the sixth day. We don't know how many kinds there were. We don't really know much about these creatures. We don't have them today to experiment with. We don't have them to observe and to feed and take care of. We don't have that. So uh, the best thing we can do is to uh, try to place them within our biblical framework of earth history and then also uh, follow some of the references throughout the Bible, particularly in Job, where Job describes two great creatures that uh, don't seem to exist anymore, but that could qualify as uh, dinosaurs and sea creatures. And then in the pre-flood period, we have a, a, a period of about 1,656 years of really unbridled and increasing sin and corruption that were brought about uh, because of man's rebellion to God. And that does influence not just man's moral character, and uh, it, it does influence, as the Bible is, is very, very clear on this, it does influence uh, the physical earth as well. Then there's the flood, one year of geological upheaval that produced volcanoes and mountains. I'm often asked, well, weren't volcanoes created by God in the beginning? And although we're not told for sure, I think just some common sense and some deductions can easily tell us that volcanoes really were not a part of God's original creation primarily because they belch out all kinds of dangerous acids and gases that are detrimental to life, not helpful for it. And so my guess is really they fit best with the breaking up of the fountains of the Great Deep and subsequent geology from there. Um, an explosion like the Yellowstone caldera uh, which is 45 miles long and 35 miles wide, would wipe out a big portion of the United States if it erupted today. So my guess is that it's really more of the product of the flood, and that's why I put, put them there. Mountains, uh, according to Psalm 104, were really established be, to, uh, to uh, bring about uh, boundaries uh, in order for floodwaters not to pass over again. That was part of God's promise. He would never again bring uh, a global flood upon the earth. And mountains play a real big part in that, in that they provide boundaries. So many of the mountain ranges that we see today are really a product of the geological upheaval of the flood and subsequent to it. And then the last 4,500 years, or the post-flood period, are really they really consist of the effects of the global flood. 
where we've seen extinction, climate change, an ice event, and more volcanism, earthquakes. Uh, the earth is a very fragile place today because of the flood and a very precarious place. We live in every day, even we should anyway, live with the um, with the realization that we are very dependent upon God. Now, the biblical flood, the scriptures teach us, was a historical event that left geological evidence. The biblical flood was a global event that left global geological effects. And the scriptures teach us that the biblical flood was one of the most significant global geological events in earth history. How could you have a global flood and not have significant geological effects in our earth? So let's answer the question, what is biblical geology? It is using the scriptural historical account to interpret the evidence. So we're using history and we're using philosophy, aren't we? It's the interpretation. But that interpretation is not in a vacuum. It is really or should be governed by the historical account of the scriptures. The science really is a very, very easy thing. Uh, most of modern geology, of course, depending on the field you choose within geology, most of the of modern geology really is not science at all. It is philosophy, uh, an attempt to describe history and consensus. Very little of it is science. And the science is really quite easy to figure out. It's learning the names of minerals and uh, how they have been used to form the rocks. You learn the characteristic uh, characterization of the minerals and uh, the part they play in the formation of the rocks but no one has ever seen most of the rock types forming. And so we really can't recount their history. We can say what they consist of, but to really recount their history is outside of science. So then we have to go into uh, history, philosophy, and consensus. And in that regard, both modern geology or secular geology and biblical geology are on the same plane. Now, if the biblical flood took place, what are the implications here? Well, very quickly, this is a study in and of itself, but the implications, of course, of a biblical global catastrophic event would be this. First of all, all the Earth's visible rock formations were formed because of the flood. Most of them during the flood and then some shortly after the flood as erosion has con continued and uh, of course the ice event left marks on the earth as well. All of the earth's visible rock formations were formed because of the flood. So when you go out into the uh, eastern Montana where we do our dinosaur digs and you get into what's called the Badlands. The Native Americans there knew it as Makoshika, is the Badlands, and they are indeed bad. Probably the only thing 
worth doing out there is looking for oil and um, commercially that is oil and raising cattle. There is nothing else out there. Those all are sedimentary in nature with a mix of volcanic ash and volcanic rocks and they contain a wealth of fossils. And uh, so this was really a product of the global flood. All of the fossils that we find on Earth are really the result of the flood and its aftermath, probably a few because of the aftermath of the flood, but most of them formed during the flood as they were buried in mass graves and uh, wonderfully preserved. Uh, we even have examples of fish that are fossilized in the act of giving birth. Uh, some are eating other fish all buried very quickly because of the flood. Most of the extinction in the fossil record, that is, those creatures that we no longer find today, uh, an example of those would be the cephalopod ammonite, which was, uh, if you picture a coiled octopus with a shell, then you get a good idea of what an ammonite was. But the extinction in the fossil record, including them, including dinosaurs and a number of other creatures, were the result of the flood. All of the Earth's present day mountains, earthquakes, volcanoes, and natural disasters are the result, or were the result, of the global flood and its consequences. The Earth was created as a very well-balanced and perfect place. Everything was in harmony, and nothing was wrong. But ever since the flood, we uh, have experienced the ravages of a global geological flood. The biblical flood was responsible for the formation of an ice event that sculpted mountains all over the world. We have some mountain ranges up in Montana, uh, north of Yellowstone Park and what's called the, and, and to the east of Yellowstone, called the Absaroka Mountains, where uh, about 9,000 cubic miles of volcanic material was erupted. These mountains would have been over 11,000 feet high. They have been sculpted by ice, and they look just like the Matterhorn. And then all of Earth's geological processes have been affected by the flood, including radioactivity and radiometric dating. Again, subject that would be good to get into at one point here on our radio broadcast, but uh, suffice it to say that all geological processes that we observe in the Earth today have been affected by the flood. So, the Bible provides a historical framework in which we can interpret all of what we see around us. Our job as geologists is to look at any given landform and try to explain what we see in light of this framework. Secularists have their framework built on uniformitarianism and they attempt to interpret everything by it. And we have our framework. So it's a, it's a war of worldviews. That's what a framework is. And we must become familiar, and this is a big job for believers today, and I don't think many really take the time to do it. We must become familiar with our framework 
Secular geologists know their framework far better than we as Christians know ours. And we must become familiar with how to use it to interpret the geology of the earth. Now, along those lines, I have now 24 textbooks written for pre-K through high school that are all designed to help build this idea into especially young people. Now, the parents benefit from it. I don't have any teacher guides because I think it's best as, since the parents have the same uh, amount and types of questions that young people have to learn it together. But these books are designed to equip you in knowing the framework in the scripture and how to use it. So there's a lot of uh, practical things about it as well. But anyway, let me just close by challenging you to uh, consider spending much more time in Genesis as our historical geological framework or biblical geology and to become familiar with how to use it. Well, thank you for listening uh, today. You can also follow us on Facebook and Pinterest to get some ideas for how to teach this stuff. And again, the website is all spelled out, of course, no breaks, northwestrockandfossil.com. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much for listening to the Creation Science Podcast. You can find the show notes at creationsciencepodcast.com. And as always, reach out to me, Felice Gerwitz, at felice at mediaangels.com. Take care, God bless, and I hope you enjoy teaching your children and learning about the beautiful world that God created. Please share this broadcast with a friend, and thanks so much. podcast is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or any of your favorite podcast apps. Look for the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Show to keep up to date with all our wonderful podcasts. For a special subscriber printable pack, as well as all our timely freebies, join our email list on the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network.com.